Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have always fun to do an interview with a friend from somebody that I interviewed. That's the best way to grow the guest list and have interesting people coming on. Archimedes Moulis, how are you today, Archie? I run very well, thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing fine, thank you. What part of the world are you in today? Currently in Geneva, raining at the moment, but uh, usually in London, where it's always raining. Uh, <laughs> Good. Well, thank you for joining us. This is... Um, it's a very cool concept, and I want this to be a learning exercise for myself and my listeners because when Brian Pallas told me about it, I never really heard of the concept, and, and we had a call, and I was intrigued, and, and I really want to help kind of educate my listeners and my peers about what this is that you're doing. But before we get to kind of collective equity, maybe give a little bit of background on yourself and how you started in this business. Yeah, thanks, Brian. And thank you for having me here. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. And let's see whether we can <laughs> teach something new and then present something something exciting that's happening on this side of the pond, especially here in the UK. Right. So my story is a bit uh, abnormal. It started back in 2017 when uh, I met an entrepreneur on the plane. But right before starting Collective Equity, I was actually a naval engineer. I used to design ships. I used to design container ships and liquefied natural gas ships. Very complex beasts. And um, I always said to myself, you know, if I can make something float, then I can make a company float. There's nothing different there. And I had this opportunity, or actually, I believe in good karma. I was on a flight from Barcelona to Geneva back in 2017. And I, bet, I met an entrepreneur on a plane. I met this random guy on a plane. 
And his name was actually Brian. And uh, Brian had his own company. And it was the first entrepreneur I actually met coming from you know a family that uh, is not business oriented at all. And uh, we started chatting. And the more he chatted, the more he intrigued me. And then we started getting a bit personal. And he, he told me his story um, of how he owns this company. This company is worth uh, about 100 million uh, pounds sterling. And he owns about 30% of the company. And he raised a lot of money in that company, a lot of VC money in the company. And in my eyes, I said, wow, this is an incredible company where the guy is a multimillionaire. I'm speaking to the next, you know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg. And, and then we started chatting a bit more. And he said, look, actually, I have a problem because even though, yes, I do own a lot about a lot of this company, and this company is worth a lot of money. In my bank account, I only have 4,000 pounds. And I looked at him and I said, man, how is it possible that you have less in your bank account as an entrepreneur than, you know, someone who is an employee? And that's where we kind of got to the problem of uh, illiquid wealth. And that's what we what we wanted to go solve with collective equity. So I want to start there with the illiquid wealth kind of concept. And, and let's parlay that into what collective equity does. What is the problem that you see in the marketplace and what is your fund trying to solve for when it comes to that illiquid asset ownership? Correct. So let's take let's take wealth as a concept to start with. Wealth is is the is the is the value of the assets in your portfolio. And usually wealth is associated to uh, real estate, it's associated to cash in the bank, and it's associated to a number of other assets, which could be your public equity portfolio, your traded portfolio. Uh, but also your private equity portfolio. Wealth, when it comes to entrepreneurs or in the asset class of venture or private equity, it starts becoming very liquid. And illiquid essentially is the is a concept is a concept that you can't really transfer that wealth into cash readily. And what that means is that you might be very wealthy, but that wealth is all on paper. And that's most and that's a, that's a problem that a lot of people have. Uh, we see it today with entrepreneurs who start their company and, and, and start their business. But it's also a problem that many shareholders of family businesses have, where wealth is, has passed through generations, but it's still stuck or uh, stuck to their company. The benefit of generational wealth, especially if you have your own business or family business, is that most of these companies, especially PBACTA, are profitable. And so they can pull out some cash in the form of dividends. The problem of venture is that these companies aren't profitable because they reinvest in growth and they reinvest in R&D and they reinvest in trying to you know, scale. So entrepreneurs or shareholders of venture-backed companies find themselves in a position where their wealth is very valuable on paper. There's no dividends coming out of it. And it's very specific to their one company. They don't have a portfolio to diverse or that, that is diversified like many wealthy entrepreneurs or many wealthy people should have. And so... This is, I think, very timely because we've seen this advent of this pre-IPO secondary liquidity marketplace really start to come down into the high net worth family office retail investment channel, whereas before it was really the purview of just institutional equity. How do you think about kind of the, the value creation of that concentration from a risk perspective versus the diversification that your fund provides? Correct, correct. Exactly. So secondaries came about as a, as a way to provide liquidity to VC or PE funds that uh, were reaching the end of their fund. And, their, and, and the GPs wanted to provide some liquidity to their LPs. And, and, and essentially, it was GP-led secondaries, right? It was a GP that was 
creating a new fund to provide some liquidity to their to their LPs. Now that transcended to secondaries becoming more and more common. Now consider that four years ago, secondaries or buying out secondary shares or shares from shareholders of private tech companies was very taboo. And VCs don't really want to provide liquidity to the shareholders or to the founders, which should be head down and working on their company and making that company the next big thing. However, they did start to realize recently that some liquidity is necessary for them to stay more motivated and to get some of that uh, stress off their off their shoulders to be able to, to think more clearly. Now, what we do differently to a, to a secondary fund is that we don't necessarily only provide cash on equity. So we don't necessarily go and buy uh, those shares from the founder or the early employee or the, or the angel or the fund. What we do is we create diversification, i.e. collective equity basically allows shareholders of private tech companies to take some of the equity that they hold in their company and to pull it together with shareholders of other tech companies, essentially providing a basket of a diversified portfolio to these shareholders who originally only own shares in that one company. And diversification is where I see a lot more value than just pure cash. Right, and I think that is the, the power of what you're doing. So what is what exactly is collective equity in terms of, is it it's a fund, it's a GPLP type private equity model? Maybe go into a little bit of detail of, I think we understand what the problem is and what the challenge is in the marketplace. You're providing a solution set for that, but what does the actual vehicle look like? Yeah, correct. So Collective equity today is a fund manager, or it's called on at the topco level, we are a fund provider, or we are a diversity provider for shareholders or anyone who owns an asset and is that asset is illiquid and they only own that asset. So essentially how it works is we 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 have a GPLP structure that we manage and we set up for uh, a given thesis, so an aggregating or pooling thesis. And essentially, we allow shareholders of these companies to contribute their equity in kind into our fund so that they become LPs in our in our fund. And essentially, what this means purely or very simply is that their capital contribution into our fund is not cash, but it is equity. Now, each fund is a closed-end vehicle. It's, uh, it has a 10-year lifespan, so it works, looks, and feels exactly like a VC fund or a PE fund. But the thesis of how you know what the portfolio looks like and how the portfolio is created is is where the the innovation is, where the difference is. So let's piggyback on top of that. Who is eligible? Do you have a target profile of entrepreneur, asset class, industry size? vintage maturation. How do you think about that? Especially given the conversation we just had about diversification is key to this investment thesis. Yeah, correct. So when I first started four years ago, the concept was, wow, this is a problem that most shareholders of most private tech companies have. So let's provide diversification to everyone, any shareholder, regardless of the size of their contribution, regardless of the size of their holding, uh, regarding the mature, regardless of the maturity of their company and their growth, etc. The problem would have, that, that 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 creates is that if you don't create quality in the pool that you go and aggregate, there's no net positive. You know, there's no benefit in diversification. So what we've created is we've created a, a thesis where we said, okay, let's focus or let's create funds which are focused based on uh, necessity, but also based on what the shareholders want. So the first fund that we've created and that we've closed is a UK tech fund, UK tech fund. So 
all every company has to be backed by institutional investors. Institutional investors help us with the due diligence element of the fund, but also with the pricing element of the fund. Each company needs to have raised a, a, a minimum amount. So it has to go through numerous funding rounds. And also the company needs to have some level of IP or, or underlying asset, which we see has a lot of value and that the company has been growing, you know, either its revenues or an X other metric that we deem to be reputable. So we work alongside you know, Atomico, Index, Local Globe, Axel, you know, some of the major VC funds, and we work with their portfolio founders to be able to offer this too. So I understand kind of who is eligible and, and how you think about you know, targeting certain groups. How does it work in, in terms of these entrepreneurs or owners? Do they actually retain ownership or control over the assets they're contributing to the fund? Yeah, correct. Now you're gonna you 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 want to hit a very interesting element of the fund, which is the element of contribution and what is actually being contributed. So if I take a step back here, the first thing is we accept shares into our fund, and we want to offer diversification to founders, to angels, to early employees, and to sometimes institutional sort of players as well. Now we 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 can't offer it to everyone as well because we need to have a minimum contribution that someone has to sort of put into the fund. So the value of their holding has to be worth a minimum amount that makes this reasonable. Also to create a significant you know portfolio where their stake actually counts into our fund. Now the contribution into the fund is as you kind of are alluding to not equity per se, but it's called beneficial ownership. Beneficial ownership is this concept of uh, basically dissecting the shares into its economic value and the legal value. So essentially, a share can basically have voting, control, decision-making, and name on the cap table, and that will fall under their legal rights of the shares. And then the share also has all of the element that refers to or reflects the economic side of the shares. So the rights to receive dividends, the rights to economic proceeds on exit, and those fall under the economic rights of the shares, which are beneficial ownership. So when someone contributes or when a shareholder contributes a share or a contribution of their equity to collective equity or to one of our funds, they're essentially contributing the beneficial ownership element to the fund and not the legal ownership of the fund. And this is very important because as a founder myself, but also knowing many founders and knowing all of the entrepreneurs who've joined our, for our funds and we speak to on a daily basis, entrepreneurs don't want to lose control of the companies. And one of the biggest problems with secondaries is that an entrepreneur is one, diluting themselves. So selling a, a, a part of their stake, but also they're bringing new investors on the cap table. So disrupting the cap table, bringing maybe a third party involved who wants to sit on the board, hence disrupting the board. So, and without understanding, you know, about what their motivations are and whether the third party investor buying the secondary stake has any idea about what the company is doing. And then the, the other thing is, as soon as the, share, the shareholder sells a part of his stake, is he's losing control of his own company. And no entrepreneur wants to lose control of his company. That's already what VCs can do for them. You know, it's the biggest fear that an entrepreneur has about a VC is that they can take their, 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 their ownership away or their CEO title away from them. There's no way that, an, that any entrepreneur would want to take that risk and, and give up any of their voting shares any further than that. That makes sense. And I think it's a, a, a fairly elegant solution to a, to a very tricky problem and issue. What about kind of, and we're going to get into valuation later because I, I, I really am curious about that, but how do you think about minimum, maximum, both on a dollar value or, or you know, 
amount valuation, but also relative to how much percentage ownership of the contribution there is, right? You still want that alignment of interest while still affording that person diversification and liquidity. Yeah, precisely. So that that goes that goes into the the minimum and maximum contribution, and then you're right, uh, the percentage ownership of a founder or a shareholder that he can contribute to our fund. So this really depends on on also the maturity of the company. Let's break this down into two parts. The first part is the value of their contribution. Well, we have a minimum amount that we can accept or that we want of a company and a maximum amount that we want of a company, both in amount that we want to own of that company and also how much we want to be exposed to that company. Remember, we want to create a portfolio with about 11 to 15 companies inside. So we want to have or we want to be able to create a portfolio that is that, that we can model to bring you know, the right returns for the shareholders, but also for ourselves. And then to provide the right you know, portfolio diversification and asset allocation. So we can't accept too little of a company, but also we can't overexpose our fund to one single company, even though some will be value drivers more than others. So that's, that's where we try and limit and model the maximum minimum returns. On the second element, which is how much can someone contribute of their stake to the fund? Well, that depends on you know, what their motivations are and why they want to contribute their stakes in the first place to the fund. And that's the same question that secondary buyers should ask themselves, which is why, are, why is this shareholder selling? You know, are they still aligned? Are they still motivated in the company? Do they know something we don't know? Because there might be some um, asymmetry of information in the due diligence process that we undertake. Hence, we try and look out for as many red flags as we can. And then we try and then put those red flags into our due diligence to understand whether, one, do we want the company in the first place? And then how much do we want to take of it? From a founder point of view, just to give you a couple of numbers, the highest amount that we accept from any shareholder is about 10 to 15% of their individual position in their company. And the smallest that we take is between, uh, I think it's between 3 and 5%. And that, that relates to anywhere between 0.5% of a company to, I think, the most that we own of one company is about 6%. And once these people make the contribution and everything's signed, et cetera, do they then become part of the governing body when they decide who else is invited to participate in the fund? Yeah. So the fund is actually a closed-end vehicle with a fixed subscription period. Essentially, what this means is that we, we have a very tight window of time in which we accept contributions from companies and we go and pick and choose the companies that we want to invite into our fund. What that means is that once that subscription period is closed, nobody else can join that fund. So it's almost like saying, I know from day one how many companies will be, or how many people will be sitting around the table with for the next 10 years, for the next eight years. And that's very important because that gives the trust factor to the other shareholders where we tell them who the other companies are that they will be diversifying with. And then to answer your question a bit further, yes, once the fund is closed, well, they do, you know, they're part of the LPAC of our fund, uh, depending on how much you contribute or they contribute of their, of, their, of their company and how much we wanted to accept with that company. But also the fund is a, is a passive holding vehicle. It will not become an actively managed investment fund because the investment part of it has been done on subscription or on contribution. The portfolio has been created prior to the fund closing rather than as a standard investment fund, which is over the life of the fund, which is over the first four years of the fund. And I know every deal is different, but 
what do you typically see in terms of these transfer agreements or these approval procedures? You typically need board sign off and, and majority ownership sign off. What, what have you typically seen here for the transactions to be approved ultimately? Yeah, correct. So to take a step back on this, well, collective equity isn't the first type of fund that has tried to pull, the, pull equity together. And we've seen multiple funds in the US try to do this. And we've seen other funds in Switzerland try to do this and France and the UK try to do this. And they've all kind of got some things right and some things wrong. I'm proud to say that we got most things right. So without being too cocky. Uh, but, but essentially, the three things that you have to get right to make this work are whether you want to get VC approval. And my, concept, my, my, my advice is you do. The second thing is how you agree on valuation. So we can go on that on that topic later. And the third one is the founder's ego or the shareholder's ego, which is how do you convince someone to contribute equity with a pool of companies that they don't know? So on the first one, which is the one we're talking about now, which is VC approval, well, some other funds have tried to do this below board or behind the sponsor's back. Now that doesn't work. And it doesn't work because you are basically killing the trust that you've been trying to build with your board and your, your, your investors since the day that you brought them on board. So trying to go behind your investors back is something that you shouldn't do regardless because the investors should be aligned with you. The investors should be there almost in the trenches, not with you, but they should know that what's happening in the trenches. And if something's going, you know, let's call it apeshit, they need to know and you want to tell them because they, they will know better because they have a portfolio of companies that have probably done or gone through the same things as you. So the way that we look at it is be as transparent as you want as, as possible with your with your VC because your VC is eventually or is essentially there to help you. So to do a country, you know, to to join a, a collective equity fund, we 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 pride ourselves to say, look, we want your board approval and we want your majority investor approval, and we will go through your articles of associations and your latest investment agreement to make sure that you can transfer your shares and your beneficial ownership to collective equities fund. And if you can't, we will make sure that we will find a way together with you, your board, your investors, and us to make it happen. And in that way, we're being collaborative. And that's very important for the for the ecosystem, especially here in the UK, where you know we need to work together to, to, to become like the US. Yeah, absolutely. And then how do you determine the liquidity part of this, right? I mean, they're getting sub upfront liquidity, but then they're also getting this ownership of this you know, collective fund assets. What is the timing like of the liquidity and what is typically the percentage that you see, you know, um, arranged in these type of transactions? Yeah. So the liquidity element of, 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 of our fund is not uh, fixed and it's not, it's not standard to every fund that we are putting together. So just for your, for your audience, collective equity basically pulls shares together, as we said. And in some circumstances, depending on the portfolio that we pull together, what we try and do is we try and sell or invite an investor to participate in that portfolio as well. And essentially, the purpose for that is because we want to provide some liquidity to the shareholders which are contributing equity into our fund on day one. Because we've noticed, right, we are providing diversification, but it's still an illiquid portfolio. You're, you own shares of a liquid company, you're putting them together with other shareholders of other liquid companies. Yes, you're diversified, but you still have 4,000 pounds in your bank account, right? That was Brian's problem on the plane. 
And essentially, the, 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 the concept here is to say, okay, now that we have a portfolio and we know exactly what the portfolio looks like and we can model the returns and we know how it's allocated, we know how it's diversified, and we've chosen every single company in that portfolio, well, it's now a much easier sell to go to a family office or to go to an institutional fund and say, look, why don't you buy 30% of this portfolio that you can see? And that becomes almost like a secondary transaction of a portfolio, which a lot of sophisticated families and, and, and most institutional investors have already seen. So that's how, we, that's how we go about that. And this leads directly to this concept of, of valuation, right? So always a tricky thing in the private space. How do you think about valuation and, and what's the rubric you use to, to come to a number that makes everybody probably a little unhappy, but it gets a deal done? Exactly. I think valuations is the, it's a sticking point where you, we, we have to think about who our stakeholders are. And, um, and there's many stakeholders here, right? There's the founders, there's the, share, there's the other shareholders of that company, there's the other investors slash sponsors in that company, there's the liquidity providers, capital providers of our fund, and then there's ourselves, right? So valuation is that one node where if you get it wrong, the deal won't go through. And if you get it too good to be true, there's also a problem in the underlying company that, you, you know, that's another red flag that starts being waived. So... The way that we look at it is we don't want to create a new price point for the company and we try and follow what someone has or has been willing to pay for that class of shares prior to us. And it's very hard because most times we're always in between rounds and that's a problem with venture. And the company is growing or has grown since the last round and maybe there hasn't been a secondary since the last round, but it's the, it's the fairest way to do it. And it's a way that if you keep consistency, then nobody gets screwed. Because you can provide, if you provide consistency and 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 uh, and structure to a deal, and you can keep that with everyone, then nobody can say, "Oh, you treated someone differently, so you prefer that company to ours." It's no, this is our standard process, and if you don't like it, well, then we don't want to do a deal with you. Now, what this essentially means in practice is that when we take a last price round of a company, we also take a fully diluted share or a full, we take on a fully diluted share price, and we account for the waterfall of that company. So usually since the last round, maybe some more options were, were added or maybe some warrants were converted or maybe a convertible loan note was converted into that as part of that round. So on a fully diluted share basis, we might be able to take a 5 to, let's say, 10% discount from the, la- from the, from the, from the value of their, of their last round. And, that's, and that satisfies, that's satisfying because it says, you know, we can, we, can, we can provide value, we can get in at a good value, but we're not screwing anyone over. And that's very important because, you know, at the end of the day, it's the founders which are building these companies. And it's the founders and shareholders which need diversification and which need some cash. And so there's no point in screwing them over because they're also the only ones running their company. And if they hate you, then one, they're never going to give you any information or they can just throw their company out and you don't want, you, you don't want that. So we just went through a lot of issues, problems that you work through. In your experience, what's typically the, the deal killer? What prevents these deals from happening? So we've seen, we've seen, we tried to close a fund during COVID and a lot of the deal killers have actually been valuations. And, 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 and worse so, it's actually telling a founder that his shares are not worth what he thinks they are. Because as soon as you start going into maybe a down round or, or a dilution round, or you know maybe they accepted terms during COVID that meant that there was a participating liquidity preference, and they weren't fully aware of this. And you tell them, look, actually your share price is 
0.01 pounds per, per share versus, and they thought it was maybe 10 pounds per share. You know, that's that's almost like an ego killer because you don't know what's going to happen afterwards. Is the founder still going to be motivated to go forward and, and build it? The, w- the way that we've seen it is we tell a founder, this is what your shares are worth today, but it doesn't mean this is what your shares will be worth. You know, you still have to, you can still build your company to, to, to make your shares worth a lot more than what they are today. You still hold shares. We've seen other funds trying to build collective equity vehicles where VCs haven't approved of the transaction. Um, where the VCs have blocked the transaction. Whereas we have been really lucky where we've worked with a lot of the, VC, the main VCs in the UK and we've had approval from most of them, actually probably all of them. And when you get some of the biggest VCs to say, yes, I can let my founder do it, then the smaller VCs, which tend to follow more, are also happier to, you know, are, are more comfortable to, to let, you know, to approve it for their, for their founders too. And so that, that was one of our biggest fears, but actually it happened to be one of our, uh, competitive advantages is that we actually created a good brand in, in the UK where a lot of VCs actually are, are um, you know, pro our, our, our new solution. So along those lines, how have you educated the marketplace about the fund, the opportunity? I assume there's an ecosystem that you've tried to plug into, but, you know, what in your experience, how people typically found you? Same way that we're educating your listeners today. We start from a problem. And then we kind of focus on the problem a bit longer. And if and I would probably do it the same way with the founder, where you make them understand, and especially during COVID, this actually helped us a bit, where you make them understand that they've spent the last 10 years building a company, working their ass off, taking or missing out on family events, their wife and families, uh, their mental health, to be well-being, holidays, a fuck ton of shit pardon my language but like honestly we tell founders that you know they put a lot of time and effort and, and pain in this and what they have is they have a lot of shares of their own company that they believe in and they're not doing this to become rich forget it founders really do this because they have a problem to solve and you tell them look if everything goes well your company might exit in the next five six seven eight nine ten years question mark and you're going to hit that singularity event where you will finally be able to convert that wealth into cash However, there are circumstances outside your control that happen, unfortunately, where what that means is that you could find yourself owning nothing, where that whole value that you've spent the last 10 years building could vanish. And it's not your fault. And that's quite scary. And that's very scary. I mean, it's scary for myself too, right, as a founder, but it's scary to think, you know, I own and I've built so much value here. And from one day to the other, I could lose all of it. Whereas my investors, the people who are my sponsors, the people who've put money into my company have a, have a diversified portfolio. And if I go really well, okay, I could become a fund returner and they're going to like fly me out to New York and maybe have an IPO and ring that bell. But if I go under, they're just going to write me off and maybe they're going to help me find a new job and maybe they're going to give me some seed capital for the next company. But they don't really care because they have a portfolio of other companies to participate in. Whereas if I lose everything I've built in value, well, that makes a lot of difference. Like that makes a much bigger difference to me. And if you can educate a founder and, ex- and understand that founders are actually very rational beings, they take irrational decisions and they like taking risk in business, but in their personal life, unless they're very wealthy, they don't like taking a lot of risk uh, because their company is already that risk. And so what we're selling or what we're providing with collective equity is the option for those founders who've made it, but still haven't made it economically 
to take some of the equity and diversify and diversify with a pool of other founders and shareholders that will be there for them. Where if your company fails and most likely will be because of something that's outside your control, well, you won't start from zero. You'll still be able to participate in some liquidity from some other companies. And that's huge. And how hard is it to have these conversations with some of these founders that have large egos? How do you handle that? Well, it's, it's very hard. You know, every founder will think my company is better than theirs. And, you know, I know what's going on under the hood of my own company. And I know the engine's working well or where the oil is missing. I don't know what's happening over there. So I think actually the best founders have been the ones who've been able to accept collective equity much more than the young founders. Founders which have just started off, who are just getting started, of course, they're shooting for the moon, but also the, the more experienced founders still shooting for the moon. But they're just more aware of, you know, the ups and downs of the, of the whole story. And so actually, luckily, the best founders are the ones which have reacted the, the best uh, when we've spoken to them about this. And so many times you find, you find founders which tell you, Arky, you're, pre- you're preparing, you're, you finally created something that I've wanted to do. Or I've been thinking about doing this for so long, I just didn't know how to. And when they say that, then, you know, that motivates you to just you know, keep going. And, and what is the dynamic within the founder community once they do this transaction and they make these contributions? How does that typically play out? And how powerful is that network been to, you know, provide value beyond just the diversifications and the liquidity? Yeah, correct. So consider, consider this. In our first fund that we closed end of last year and beginning of this year, we had 21 shareholders from 11 companies. Not all 21 shareholders were founders. Some of them were early employees. Some of them were founders. Some of them were early angels. Now, that community is diverse in terms of know-how, in terms of their own liquidity and how they can support the ecosystem. But the founders with, with, within themselves bond, bond much more because they can put each other, themselves in each other's shoes. But they're obviously, they're not talking on an everyday basis. Let's put it this way. A founder that has, let's say, uh, Atomico backing them already has a lot of the support that they need from Atomico trying to plug them in in that cohort. What we try to provide them is a bit of peace of mind in their financial stability, which is something that nobody else can give them. And then knowing that they're doing this with other great founders and other angels, who, by the way, have also been founders, hence their angels, makes them just reassures them that, you know, this is a step that they that they're happy to have made as part of their journey. Would you describe this as an exchange fund for private equity? Correct. In can you US, explain? Can you explain what an exchange fund for people that don't know what it is? So, for, in my understanding of an exchange fund in the U.S., the the concept of an exchange fund is it started back in the late 1980s or 90s, and actually provided by J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs, and it was mostly for shareholders of publicly traded companies, and and mostly it was C-level management of these publicly traded companies that had most of their option package or most of their executive package, remuneration package in options in their company with a very strict holding period on those shares. And instead of selling one, because they couldn't sell their shares, so even though they were public, they were liquid, an exchange fund basically brought together shareholders of publicly traded companies, and most of these were tech companies as well, together and pulled this equity together for seven years. And then at the end of it, they would go home with a diversified portfolio of publicly traded companies. A powerful tool that not a lot of people know about, but there's some great platforms out there. Does this concept of, of collective equity, 
Does it exist in the U.S.? Are there sponsors and fund managers doing the structure? So there, there have been, the there have been uh, structured collective equity funds in, or it's called an exchange funds in the U.S. A famous one was one run by Larry Albuquerque. His fund was called EB Exchange, so Eleven Baskets Exchange, Exchange, and his first fund had eleven companies inside, hence the name. I don't know what happened to that, and I know that's not it's not going anymore. But I also know of uh, informal exchange funds that have been going through, mostly within the venture ecosystem. I mean, I know that Peter Thiel and some of his buddies have been doing it. And what is what do you think is stopping it from being more prevalent? Enforceability, because if you don't if you don't get one of those three factors right, which is VC approval, agreeing on valuations, and pulling together the right companies then the people who have done this or who have pulled their equity together will not want to share their gains with the rest of the fund. Let's put it this way. If you don't get VC approval and you go behind the board and the articles of association of that company prevent a transfer of economic rights or transfer of shares without board approval, then in the, in the situation where the company exits, the founder can just say, hey man, hey guys, I'm sorry. I love you. Thank you so much for the support over the last 10 years or the last five years. But I never could have actually transferred my shares to the fund in the first place. I never asked for board approval. Hence, I'm not going to distribute my you know, 10 million pounds to, or $10 million to the fund. And so you have enforceability up there. The second one is, if I never agree on valuations, I will never be satisfied and I will never be joining this in the first place. And agreeing on valuations, when you have founders and companies which are constantly growing, it's really hard. And so what's really hard about a collective equity fund or an exchange fund is perfectly timing these three concepts or these three problems into something that floats. Hence, you needed a, a naval engineer in finance who could structure this and now can scale this to the US. And that's my next question. I mean, this is really cool. This has been highly educational for me. I really think the concept has legs, obviously. It, it does solve a problem in the marketplace, which I love that type of product offering or service offering. What is the next step here for you? Where do you see this platform growing and scaling to correct L- luckily it has has some legs it's gone it's, <laughs> it's reached some somewhere if you look at our first portfolio i'm really proud of 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 their growth since we we pulled it together and the pipeline of the second fund in the uk is is also extraordinary the same companies we were speaking to six months ago are now pre-ipo or also unicorns like the uk has just announced it's a hundredth unicorn company which is extraordinary so the companies are growing really fast. We expect to build more UK-centric funds, but we're also trying to understand where the next market is and what the next opportunities are. Today, we're doing venture because it's fairly easy to value. It has a price point. What we would like to do really is also get into or offer this to shareholders of family businesses where diversification there is even more important because the ups and downs of their markets are even more cyclical than tech companies. And we just, we've just found a way to you know, provide a standardized valuation product for them. And so the idea would be to stay in the UK and offer that and also to find other markets. With the venture product, or with the venture product, essentially we're aggregating tech companies and we've had calls from the US to go and offer you know, some shareholders of some pretty good companies in the US have asked us to, to bring this to the US and also in Hong Kong and in Southeast Asia, which is actually quite interesting because there's a, there's a huge ecosystem there, less known if you're not, if you're not actively looking at it. Uh, but sometimes you hear some crazy stories about valuations, exits, 
and how that exit is actually reinvested in the in the ecosystem that I feel as if the the mindset is there. Well, Archie, best of luck to you. This has been very compelling. I think it's terrific. I agree with you. I think the US makes a lot of sense. The growth in Southeast Asia, especially amongst the the tech entrepreneurs, makes a ton of sense. So what's the best way for people to, if they want to learn more about the fund, your background, if they're an investor, an entrepreneur, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, always our website. So www.collectiveequity.com. Collective Equity has two E's in between. And uh, and on LinkedIn, we're very active. And you can add me on LinkedIn, Archimede Mulas. And uh, I'll usually try and reply within within 24 hours. And then obviously reach out to Brian and ask for my number and I'll be more than happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm happy to facilitate the introduction. So with that, we'll we'll close it down, but I look forward to staying in touch with you and seeing the growth and, and tracking all the development. And I wish you the best of luck. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.